Please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. And it will again be subject to burning. Like a terebinth or an oak. Whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our great God, our King and our loving Heavenly Father, as we consider the subject of your holy character, we know that in our own strength, in our own wisdom, this task would be impossible. This morning we stand on holy ground as Moses stood before you at the burning bush. And we know that if it were not for your graciousness, this ground would open up and swallow us and drag us all down to the pit. We thank you and praise you for your goodness and graciousness toward us. And we humbly ask that as we consider what it means that you are a holy God, that you would reveal yourself through your word and enlighten our hearts with 
enlighten our hearts and our minds through your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would forgive all of my sin and purify these unclean lips of mine and use them for your glory. We ask all these things in the name of your blessed Son, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen. As most of you know, I am slowly but surely working my way through a Master of Divinity program at at, uh, the North American Reformed Seminary. And uh, back in December, I finished up my first seminary-level systematic theology class. And uh, if if you're interested in systematic theology, uh, like I said earlier, uh, uh, we meet at the... uh, Small's house on Sunday nights and we're watching a, a video series on systematic theology taught by R.C. Sproul, so there's a little plug for that. Um, in the, but in the courses that I take in, in uh, seminary, the textbooks that they have us use are usually at least a couple hundred years old. And you say, well, why would you want to use all those old books? Well, because the copyrights have been taken away, have expired, and the seminary can simply scan the books in and distribute them to the students for free, which I think free is a good price. One of the, the books that, that the course creators for my systematic theology class had me use was Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity, which was written in the middle of the 1600s. Mr. Watson, in his chapter on God and his creation, discusses four of 14 distinct attributes of God. He wrote about attributes like the knowledge of God, the eternality of God, the immutability of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the truth of God, and so on and so forth. I think even, even as long as that list is, I think even Mr. Watson would have to agree that that list is not exhaustive. But among those attributes that made it onto Mr. Watson's list, one of them kind of stood out to me, and that's mostly because R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries have made it their mission in life to highlight this particular attribute of God, and that was, of course, the holiness of God. This morning, I want to share with you some thoughts about the holiness of God, and most importantly, what the holiness of God has to do with us. I wanted to begin with a passage that we read from Isaiah 6, not because it gives us an exhaustive, systematic definition of holiness, but because Isaiah 6 makes us aware of holiness. Some of us are old enough to remember the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And depending on how old you were at the time, you may may remember that there was a state of upheaval that was caused in our nation because of that assassination. If you're not old enough to remember the Kennedy assassination, you might be old enough to remember when President Ronald Reagan was shot in 1981 and the turmoil that caused and in the hours that followed the questions that arose over who was in charge of the country while President Reagan was in the operating room fighting for his life. Whenever a king or a president or a prime minister or any head of state dies while in office, 
it immediately becomes a time of national crisis. And Isaiah 6 begins by telling us that it was the year of King Uzziah's death. Isaiah begins by letting us know that it was a time of crisis and uncertainty in the nation of Judah. But in contrast to that situation in Judah where there was all this upheaval, instead of entering the king's court in Jerusalem, Isaiah is taken into the throne room of God in heaven. And our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And under the reign of the king of kings, there is stability. There is order that no one on earth can upset. There's enough biblical data for us to assume that this throne room in heaven is a very real place. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that when Jesus Christ acted as our high priest, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. I'm not going to take the time this morning to review all the characteristics of the tabernacle, which was the portable temple that the Lord had Moses set up in the wilderness and also served as a model for the permanent temple which Solomon built in Jerusalem. But the tabernacle and the temple were pictures designed to help God's people understand God's exaltation in heaven, or more importantly, God's holiness. We're told in Hebrews 9 that Jesus went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And that alone should let us know that Isaiah was not telling us about some dream or some hallucination that he had, but that he was taken up into a real throne room, not of this creation but still very real. Beyond what Hebrews 9 tells us, Revelation 4 tells us about an event where the Apostle John was taken up into the throne room in heaven. And John's description of this throne room is almost identical to Isaiah's description. And this was right down to these bizarre creatures that had six wings and continually repeated Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. I think it's interesting that in our English Bibles, Isaiah chapter 6 is the only place in all of Scripture that we find the word seraph. In Revelation 4, John tells us about these strange creatures that have six wings and say holy, 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 but he doesn't use the word seraph to refer to them. And so we're kind of left to wonder, what's a seraph? We know about cherubs. We even sang about cherubs this morning when we sang Psalm 99. And there were several gold statues of cherubs that were in the temple in Jerusalem. We know about angels who were messengers from God to certain people at certain times. And we saw that in our Lectio Continua reading this morning. But what's a seraph? Seraphs had a unique anatomy. Isaiah says each seraph had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And the seraphs proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But beyond that, very little, we know very little about seraphs. And I think that that is significant in itself. The seraphs are something that is different. They're not like anything else that we know about. And I wanted to come back to that. But keep in mind, seraphs are something different. When we talk about God and the attributes of God, we humans like to soft pedal the biblical portrait of God. We prefer a tame God. We like to emphasize God's love, God's forgiveness, God's graciousness, God's mercy, etc. And don't get me wrong, I am eternally grateful that God is loving and forgiving and gracious and merciful. If it were not for those attributes, we would all go to hell. But the question really needs to be, what attributes are most important to God? In English, when we write an email or an uh, article or a term paper, if you're, you're in school, when we, do, when we do that and we want to emphasize something, we have a variety of ways of, of making that emphasis. We can write something in all capital letters or we can pull, put it in bold typeface or we can underline it or italicize it and we can even put it in different colors. The biblical writers didn't have all these techniques available to them. We have one instance in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, where Paul tries to, let, to, tries to use larger letters for emphasis. He wrote, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. But in the copies of copies of copies of, of the scriptures that have come down to us, that large letter formatting has been lost. And so we can't really be sure where Paul's um, emphasis was supposed to begin and end there in in, uh, Galatians chapter 6. But in the original Greek and Hebrew, they didn't have even punctuation marks, and the Hebrew didn't even have vowels. So if you were a biblical writer and you wanted to emphasize something, what do you do? I think we would all agree that everything that Jesus ever said was sacred and important. But we also know that when Jesus wanted people to pay special attention to something, he was, would preface his statement with, Truly, truly, I say unto you, In the older King James translation, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. But whichever translation you like, the thing that Jesus does to to give us emphasis is he repeats that word twice. Truly, truly. In the original Greek, it's amen, amen. Sometimes when a biblical writer like Paul wanted to add emphasis, he would say the same thing just in a little bit different way. And we see a good example of that in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul writes, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, 
If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Paul, Paul uses repetition. He says the same thing in two different ways because he wanted to emphasize the idea. The poetical books like Psalms and Proverbs make extensive use of this literary device. And, and, and perhaps the greatest example of this is found in, in Psalm 136, where you will see that all 26 verses end with the phrase, His loving kindness is everlasting. And repetition is used for emphasis. So why am I telling you all that? Well, of all the attributes of God we read about in Scripture, there's only one attribute that is re- repeated not twice, but three times. And that is when the seraphs, these beings that are unlike any other creatures, declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And we need to note that the, the seraphs don't say, the Lord is holy. And they don't even say the Lord is very holy. They declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There were about 700 years that passed in between the time that Isaiah was taken up into the heavenly throne room and the time John was taken up into the throne room. And, and we see that, that in Revelation, when John tells us about it, those same seraphs, those same beings are still repeating, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. And I think it's reasonable for us to conclude that, that in that 700-year period of time, the seraphs never stopped making that declaration over and over again. In fact, I think it's reasonable for us to assume that even right now, this morning, those same seraphs are in the throne room in heaven declaring holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. Now, why has God given us this glimpse into the heavenly throne room to hear the seraph's declarations? When we see in Scripture an adjective that is repeated not two but three times, that's what theologians call a superlative. In all of Scripture, only one attribute of God is stated in the superlative. And that is his holiness. We are told in scripture that God is merciful, but we're never told merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord. We're told that God is love, but we're never told God is love, love, love. God allows us to hear this superlative declaration of the seraphs. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Because we need to pay attention to it. How does Isaiah respond when he is confronted with the holiness of God? Well, first, he relates to us the overwhelming appearance of the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, that alone sets the Lord apart from any earthly king. 
The lofty and exalted throne is indicative of the Lord being the great king of kings. And we see the seraphs with their great declaration. And when the Lord speaks, the foundations tremble and the temple throne room fills with smoke. Isaiah wanted us to understand just how puny he felt when he came into the presence of the Lord. So how does Isaiah respond when he's confronted with the holiness of God? He says, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe to me, for I am undone. I want to focus for just a minute on Isaiah's choice of the words woe and undone. Isaiah, as we know, was a prophet. And we know that prophets were to deliver what are known as oracles or declarations from the Lord to the people. And there were two different types of oracles. There were oracles of weal and oracles of woe. An oracle of weal was good news and an oracle of woe was bad news. Now, we all acknowledge that Jesus Christ was our great prophet, priest, and king. And as our great prophet, Jesus delivered both oracles of weal and oracles of woe. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. These are all oracles of weal. They are good news. But Jesus also said things like, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. Now that's an oracle of woe, and it's bad news. And the scribes and the Pharisees would have recognized it as such because of Jesus' use of the word, word woe. The Old Testament Hebrew word that's translated in as woe is a word that many of us already know. It's the word oi. You might be familiar with the, the Yiddish expression oi vey. When that word is brought into the New Testament, it isn't even translated. And Jesus literally says, Oi, oi to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Oi is the same word that Isaiah uses in, in chapter 6, verse 5. Oi is me, for I am undone. Isaiah is pronouncing an oracle of woe upon himself an oracle of oi, and it's bad news. It's a curse. And Isaiah realizes that he's in big trouble. And he says, woe is me, for I am undone. The other word I said I wanted to look at is this word undone. Some of your translations might say, I am ruined, or I am lost. In this particular case, I think the King James translation in using the word undone does the best job of capturing the meaning. When a vehicle or, or a building are sound, 
we say that, that they hold together, they have integrity. And when we talk about people who have their life well-structured, people who are virtuous, we say that those people have integrity. However, if a person's life is not going so well, sometimes we will say, that guy's falling apart. Or if things are really bad, they may be having a mental breakdown. Essentially, they are coming undone. And Isaiah says, Oi to me, for I'm about to fly apart. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I've been an elder now for almost 19 years. And in that time, I've had a handful of people tell me that they personally have seen an angel or, or Jesus Christ or that they've audibly heard uh, the voice of God. And I've always been skeptical when they talk about the warm, peaceful feeling that that experience gave them. And I've been skeptical because that seems to be contrary to the experiences that are relayed in Scripture. You might remember a couple of years back when Pastor Hickey was preaching through Habakkuk. And what was Habakkuk's reaction when he was confronted with the holiness of God? He said, when I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, and rottenness entered my bones. When Job was confronted with the holiness of God, what happened? He said, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice and I will add nothing more. And I think it's interesting that, that like uh, Isaiah Habakkuk's uh, attention and Job's attention are drawn to their mouth. When an angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's parents, what did Manoah, who was Samson's father, what did he say? He said, we will surely die, for we have seen God. You can also read about Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist who was gripped with fear when an angel appeared to him in the temple. And he lost his ability to speak for nine months. There's yet another reference to the mouth, to what, what you say, what Zacharias said. John Calvin, in his first volume, in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, writes, Hence, that dread amazement with which as scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. When we see those who previously stood firm and secure so quaking with terror that the fear of death takes hold of them, nay, they are in a manner swallowed up and annihilated. The inference to be drawn is that men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. 
no matter how holy the man was in Scripture, the Bible uniformly relates that when confronted with the holiness of God, the response is terror. And that response of terror is is really quite justified. In Leviticus 10, when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were not careful about the worship of the Lord, we're told fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And Aaron had to keep silent about it. Yet another reference to the mouth and to what we say. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, when they were transporting the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart, a man named Uzzah touched the Ark when the cart was upset. And we're told that when he did that, when he touched the Ark of the Covenant, the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah and God struck him down there for his irreverence. Or you can even look at the New Testament book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira tried to lie to the Holy Spirit about their giving practices, what happened? The Lord killed both of them. It wasn't that their giving practices were sinful, it was that they tried to lie about it. There is again the reference to what you say. There are more examples, but I think you start to get the idea. Being confronted with the holiness of God consistently provokes a response of terror. If you look in your, in your Bible to James chapter 3, James sheds some light on why the things that we say cause us to be set at such great odds with the holiness of God. James chapter 3, starting with verse 2, says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look also at the ships. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Well, going back to our account in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God in heaven. And his response was, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says, I am about to fly apart. I have a dirty mouth, and my people have dirty mouths. 
and I have come into the presence of the Lord of hosts. Well, we know that the Lord didn't want to leave the situation there. The Lord had work for Isaiah. But in order for Isaiah to be fit for the Lord's service, the Lord has to acknowledge Isaiah's repentance, atone for his sins, and forgive him. And in verses 6 and 7, we are told, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Now you have to ask yourself, how much did that hurt? We all know that our lips are one of the most sensitive areas of our bodies. That's why we kiss with our lips. We don't kiss with our fingers or our ears or whatever. We kiss with our lips because they're sensitive. If you've ever tried to eat a cookie when it came right out of the oven and you burned your mouth on it, you know that that alone can be very painful. That was nothing compared to what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah had this seraph bring a live coal and he carried it with tongs because it was too hot for even the seraph to touch. And the seraph touched Isaiah's mouth with this live coal. And it must have immediately formed an excruciatingly painful, bleeding blister on Isaiah's mouth. If we confess our sin, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those are words of great hope and great joy. But they are not a promise that repentance will be comfortable. An easy way that that we can demonstrate that repentance is uncomfortable is is in our silent confession of sin each week. And and in the time that I've been doing this kind of thing, um, I've I've recognized a few things. If that silent period where we, we have our private prayers goes much more than 20 seconds, people start to get uncomfortable. And if it goes 30 seconds, people will start looking around at their other family members or whatever's going on in the room because, you know, there's this awkward silence. And if you let it go 60 seconds, well, then people start to wonder, what did the pastor do this week that he has has to confess his sins for such a long time? But if we were all honest, we would have to admit that in the past week, all of us have committed a lot more than 60 seconds worth of sin. Can you imagine how our worship would be different if we fully grasped the understanding that we have come into the presence of the Lord of hosts? Well, we've talked about the impression that the heavenly throne room made on Isaiah and about the seraph's declaration 
that holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the response that provoked in Isaiah. As I said earlier, that the seraphs are something different. They are not like anything else that we know about. They are something different, and these unique creatures declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What does it mean that God is holy? The word holy, which we translate from the Hebrew word kadosh, incorporates two ideas. And most of us tend to focus on the second one, which is righteousness or goodness. And we would expect a holy God to be a righteous God. We would expect a holy man to be characterized by a righteous life. But the predominant idea in the word of Kadosh, to be holy, is to be set apart. Just as the seraphs are set apart as something different than everything else that we know about, what the, the Lord has set us apart to be holy to him. Well, what does that have to do with us? Well, the Apostle Peter tells us in his first epistle, he says, you shall be holy for I am holy. We as God's people are to be set apart. We're to be different. We're to be a peculiar people. As I was preparing this sermon, there were so many rabbit trails that I wanted to go down because I would, would see you know, one verse and I'd say, wow, that's connected to this whole passage and that's connected to this. The holiness of God affects every aspect of our lives. And our mandate to be holy is all-encompassing. Holiness is not easy. In fact, sometimes it's downright scary. Repentance is not comfortable, but it brings forgiveness and a peace with God, and it prepares us to be holy as he is holy and to be used by God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Let's pray.